This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is April 13th, 2023. I'm Scott Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the Easter break special. It's a quiet week as the legislature hasn't been sitting and, I don't know, not much to nothing happened federally. But the BC Liberals are officially no more. And we can talk about how BC United is now the new party in town. Uh, but a new name might not be enough to guarantee future victories for the beleaguered free market coalition. Uh, speaking of the market, give us money, patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's jump into it. The big news, Wednesday, yesterday, the BC Liberal Party is officially BC United. They unveiled their logo, and it's boring. It's a logo? <laughs> for those who haven't seen it, uh, it's in big block letters, says United. Before that, on the left, it says BC in slightly smaller letters. Above that is an arch that is in red and blue. It's actually, what is it? Cyan, like magenta and cyan. It's printer colors. And it's supposed to be a bridge. Oh, is that what that is? That had to be explained. Yeah, people had to explain that to everyone. It's a bridge showing. No, normally, there's a when you have a bridge, there's a deck on it. That's this level surface that things go across on it. So not having that on there kind of uh, takes away from that image a bit. Listen, the BC United wants you to know that if they are elected, they will scrap the Massey Tunnel and build that bridge. And they will just build bridges everywhere because we are bridging this province. That's what I got from the logo. I think the other thing I joked about in Slack is it looks like a university corporate logo, like very dull like, okay, BCU, we're going to BC University. It's not inspiring, but I guess I was trying to think about this more broadly. Like, logos don't matter, right? I mean, they generally don't. Like, I don't think anyone votes on a logo, but the broader brand proposition does. And to the extent that it contributes or takes away from that, it kind of matters. Yeah. Like, if they were hoping to get a bump out of this, I don't think this is the type of logo or graphic design work product that would actually get anyone interested on it. And honestly, my biggest takeaway is that's it. Like, you've been working on this thing for a year now, and this is what you've come up with? I mean, Kevin Falcon's speech associated with it, which you watched, was everything you would expect it to be in just the most bland way, like an AI uh, autocomplete could have written it out for him of just, we're going to be the party that is together for the future kind of stuff. Yeah. So like, this doesn't really tell much of a story or anything. It doesn't, I don't get the sense from either the speech that Kevin Falcon gave or the, the logo in the name. It's really, it doesn't like tell me anything about what this party is or, and like, even the speech was kind of a little meh on a lot of stuff. And I know I've said this a bunch of times, but like, it's a not a great name for a political party because it doesn't really speak to the concerns of British Columbians. It is very clearly an internal coalition management name change because the more conservative parts of the BC Liberal Coalition didn't like the Liberal name. And this is kind of managing that tension there. And it was a tension that only grew as the liberal voter, federal liberal voters had started to flee the party for the NDP. The, it just, yeah, became, it shifted the balance of power within the party a bit. And, but like overall, what it's really trying to say is that, hey, the big tent is still the big tent, but was anyone that wasn't involved in the BC Liberals actually concerned about that? Uh, I, I, I see 
Like, is that the reason people didn't vote for them last time? Or is it uh, a whole bunch of other issues? And like, we'll get to the polling uh, in a little bit here, but there's a lot of things British Columbians don't think is are going well with the province. Unity is not on the thing, not anywhere on that list of problems that need to be addressed. And it doesn't even tell you like the value proposition beyond, oh, hey, the tent is still standing here. Uh, and I'm not going to be so critical, right? This is a country where the Saskatchewan party is the dominant force in one province that's pretty obvious you, where you th- the Yukon party in another. They couldn't take the British Columbia party because it had been used recently. So like it's it's not a obvious name, but like federally we've had But you see those ones they tell you something. They're like they're trying to associate with the province or the territory itself. Like there is a clear proposition behind that that is actually about the people and the province. Sorry, go on. I think this can be that, right? Though, BC United, we're all united in it. And that's what I think he tried to do in his speech. But the fundamental thing is that the rebrand needs to be a root and bone, uh, toad or root and trunk, uh, complete makeover of the party. And we haven't fully seen that yet. We haven't seen the policies. They've just tried to like soften the edge and try to ask people to forget the 16 years that happened now actually like seven years ago so there is like enough space that we could start to talk about a new party but you know they have the guy who's from that era trying to tell you he's he's a changed man i don't so coming back to the logo itself like i don't think it matters uh i tried to look up some academic discussion on this and there's a lot more written in the u.s because presidential campaigns put a lot of time and effort and money into their logos and there's then a lot of talking heads who are really bored and think about it and the general conclusion is like a bad logo can drag you down a bit and make you a joke especially if it leans into uh, any negative stereotypes of your party Uh, a good logo is going to be forgotten (laughs) or is like it's it doesn't bring votes over like you said but that's like your peak and i don't think this brings them down in any way like it's a bit bland and maybe that plays into the party itself but like i couldn't tell you what a lot of logos of political parties have looked like i think i know most of the federal ones only because i run a podcast on politics and so i spend a lot of time looking at this kind of stuff but it doesn't matter ontario liberals released a really stupid logo recently it doesn't matter it it was a big circle uh, around the word liberal, I think in both English and French, all in red, and it was—I think the circle was supposed to be O for Ontario, um, but like, who cares? <laughs> it, it's ugly, but it—it it tells you they're the liberals of the O, and this tells you they are BC United, which they need people to know that name when they go to vote. So I think the bigger problem here is kind of the opportunity cost that went into this. Like they, this has been kind of the thing they've been working on for quite a while. And like you said, there's a lot of challenges the party has. Uh, their fundraising numbers are not great, which I don't know, maybe kind of res- is reflected in kind of the lower quality logo and whatnot that came out of this. And also the video they used to introduce that us before Kevin Falcon came on was uh was not great uh I am pretty sure they got a bunch of staffers to try and act out the roles and it just did not work it was like all filmed in like one office and uh the whole thing felt very low budget and inauthentic and maybe that yeah and maybe that's why the uh uh, and maybe that's part of what made this not land, but uh, but there needs to be a lot of work done, and they need to figure out how to actually build a message and brand proposition that connects to like the major issues facing British Columbians. And this ain't that, and they've just wasted a year doing. Yeah, all of let's this. bridge. Let's continue the conversation through the next couple of stories, but I want to move us into the annual financial reports that were just dropped this afternoon from Elections BC. 
This is the nice balance sheet, income statement, and the associated final list of major donors to each party. We've talked about fundraising numbers in the past, so there's no surprises here. Uh, the BC NDP raised $4 million last year, just over BC United, then BC Liberals, $2.5 million, and the Greens, just over $1 million. So like you said, not competitive numbers for BC United, but what's really fascinating on the annual reports is looking at those balance sheets and looking at that net revenue. So BC United is running, like, is burning money. They lost $277,000 last year on their uh, income statement versus the Greens had a surplus of $207,000. It's $500, almost $1,000 difference between them. Uh, BC NDP had a $1.7 million surplus last year. So this tells me the BC United, or then the BC Liberals, are are spending a lot, but apparently they're not spending it on the production of the video that is supposed to launch their party. <laughs> Versus like the Greens are running this like hyper-efficient, maybe too cheap of a ship. But what really is fascinating in here is when you look at the balance sheets, you can look at the accumulated surplus, which is basically all of their assets, less their liabilities. That tells you how much money they have to spend in the next election, right? Uh, BC United sitting on $2.3 million. The Greens, $2.4 million. The Greens have more cash than the BC United. Uh, the NDP has more than double of both of them combined. They have $10.7 million, which is getting obscene at this point. It's like old BC Liberal money uh, amounts before the fundraising rules got changed. Uh and yeah, that's like part of the problem is the, the fundraising rules did get changed when the governments came in and the liberals never really did the work to retool their fundraising apparatus, or at least they didn't under Andrew Wilkinson. And based on what's here, doesn't look like Kevin Falcon has spent his first year as leader really uh, going through and doing that work as well, which just, yeah, makes you wonder like, have they been entirely focused on this name change stuff as opposed to doing the kind of work that's required to retool the party for, you know, what the political landscape and the uh, legal landscape around politics looks like in 2023 Indeed. and 2022, yeah. I guess, since this are the 2022 Like To give you numbers. a sense of what these numbers mean, the BC NDP spent $7.6 million in the 2020 uh federal or provincial election. So their next election is fully funded already. The other parties still need to raise a lot of money. Uh, the Greens presumably aren't going to run as big or hard of a campaign as the two major parties. But BC United is in a rough state. At least they have more donors than the Greens. Uh, I didn't look deep into the numbers on that side, or at least the BC United donors are willing to give more money. I can say that pretty confidently. Um, but once again, the financial numbers are like just wildly good for the BC NDP. And like you said, uh, finding the way to operate under the new system is definitely the challenge. I think, yeah, the Greens have it figured out. They just, you know, are in a different league. Uh, and the NDP is just raking it in. And BC United is sitting here very thankful for the per vote subsidy that is keeping them in the game. Let's talk about the other bad news for them, though. Uh, this Angus Reid poll that, you know, I almost wasn't going to include this because, like, a standalone poll is, uh, you know, one set of numbers. And I don't think this one diverges particularly significantly from anything else out there. Uh, but I think we can use it as kind of a litmus test to just kind of see where the state of the province is. And I, and because I think most polls are, you know, plus or minus three from this, uh, they largely show the NDP still doing very well and BC United struggling to take off and the Greens, frankly, also struggling to break from their, you know, high teens area. Yeah. It, the top line numbers are not the most interesting part of this at all. Like you said, they've it's fairly consistent with what we've seen from other polls. It's more when you start diving into the breakdowns in here that is, I think, 
what really tells the interesting story here. So top line numbers, 45% for the NDP, 31 for the uh, Liberals or BC United. I'm still not used to saying that. Uh, and 16% for the Greens with 8% for others, which I presume is mostly conservative. But when you look at the actual regional breakdowns, it is not a pretty picture for the uh, BC United uh, on this. Uh, so they basically are losing every region except the interior and north, some by pretty large amounts. Uh, they're behind the Greens on the island and the north coast, uh, sitting at... 35% to the NDP's 51 in the lower mainland and Fraser Valley. Now that's excluded Metro Vancouver, which gets its own uh, section where they're 34 to 50 on that. that. And that those numbers are almost the same for both parties is wild. Like we're in a very different situation than we were a decade ago when the, the Fraser Valley has just become indistinguishable from Metro Val Metro Van in this poll. Yes. And there are not enough seats in the interior in the north to to offset that, particularly when it is much more neck and neck, where there's only a six point gap uh, in the interior in the north. Uh, and especially as we'll get to later, if we're adding more seats to Metro Van, the Lower Mainland, uh, and the island. Yeah, like th there is no like clear path to victory based on what is in here, and uh, it is clear that if they were to try and find one they probably have to regain the fraser valley at the very least and make more inroads in metro vancouver uh, people it turns out don't know or if they do they don't really like kevin falcon uh, the best part of the favorability of the provincial leaders graphs is the strongly approved favorability bar on his graph is almost invisible. It's like 1% strongly approve of the job he's doing versus 13% strongly approve of David Eby's job. They didn't have space to write the number yeah. on it, unlike every um, other bar. David Eby has a 36% somewhat approved versus Kevin Falcon's 20%. Uh, on the other side of the numbers, uh, Kevin Falcon's got is that almost 50% disapprove, and David Eby is sitting at I'm doing math in my head here. Uh 35% just under disapproved. 33% disapproved. So net positive positive for David Eby, uh quite a bit net negative for Kevin Falcon. Like maybe they got him on the phone or you know his family to and they were the ones who said strongly approved, but I could also see them going, you know what? We're not I don't actually know if I'm doing that great of a job. I mean, they found well Look at the the end is like six hundred and forty one. So they found six seven people in, in all of their phone calls. And what's wild in here, as we scroll through the other things, is like it's not like there's reason for the BCNDP to be doing so well. Uh, they asked on. Okay, go for it. Well, before we move on, yeah, before we move on to that, just like one other thing on like the breakdowns by kind. Uh, so we talked a bit about regional but the other interesting breakdown here was the uh the demographic breakdown uh so the ndp has a uh, slight lead among men at 43 to 40 uh strong lead among women uh 48 to 22 uh as well as they are in the lead on every age category pretty much the only demographic that actually uh is net supportive of the uh bc united compared to the bc liberals was the 100k plus household income and even then we are talking about a two-point lead for bc united on that one so oh demographically uh older people and men tend to lean more right and they're BC United can't even win on those groups, which is the sort of thing that ought to be very concerning for a right of center party if their uh, base isn't showing up the in bad, polling as supporting them. Yeah, the bad or news the for the government in here base. is on the uh, various issues Angus Reid asked about. None of them, the government gets a majority saying they're doing a good job, and there's only two issues, education and the relationship with the federal government, where 
a strong number uh say are more likely to say they are doing a good job than a poor job on things well there's three that have a plurality oh if you exclude uh, the non-sure good job uh so uh, or oh i was oh i yeah. see 41 well, to 39 thinking, is like a margin yeah, of error or the, yeah still technically positive uh, and that would be first nation slash indigenous issues is how i just recategorize that category um on there um but yeah if you compare that to their question on what are the top issues facing British Columbians uh, cost of living and inflation uh, 63% say that's a top issue healthcare 50 housing affordability 40 uh, if you look at what the actual views on how well the government's performing on that housing affordability 11% think the government's doing a good who's job the, who's to that 11% who are like damn uh, cost of things are going great Oh, I'm pretty sure they're the people who own homes in like West Vancouver. Uh, the uh, cost of living inflation, 77. Think uh, the government's doing a bad job compared to a mere 17% uh, where they're positive on it. And of the top three issues, uh, healthcare is probably where the NDP is doing the best. And even that, they're only getting 28% approved compared to 67 uh, who think they're doing a poor job. So pretty much every top issue, nobody thinks the government's actually doing a good job in there, which ought to be the sort of thing that a opposition party that I wouldn't even say is connecting, but is at least seen as a viable alternative would be able to yeah, it's, gain something. People are looking that. at the two choices of major political parties and going, these are my major issues. The current government's doing bad, but I think the other party would do worse, which is quite the indictment. Yeah. So like that is really where the, uh, the BC United should be put in their effort is figuring out how to connect with British Columbians on these issues. And as much as I hate to point to this as a model, like it can be done for right of center parties because Pierre Polyev, I think is outpolling the current government on at least two of those three top issues uh, on that. And I don't necessarily want to see Falking aping that style. It, uh, there are certainly, it's not like that, that can just be written off as, Oh, well, they'll never be competitive there because of their ideological positioning on that. Um, it's like there are absolutely ways they can connect on those and they should be figuring out how to do that as opposed to spending the better part of a year on some fairly weak ass rebranding there. Uh, and the, But that's going to take some serious work and it is not the sort of thing that necessarily happens overnight and that so far i don't see any real sign bc united is actually doing the work on that stuff they seem to be hoping the government is just going to fail and they'll be able to step in but they're not really offering something that's a compelling enough alternative even on issues where only 11 percent think the government's doing a good job uh in more bad news for them i'm just digging into the cross tabs of the people who voted bc liberal in 2020 56% say they would vote the same in the next election. There's there's not a lot going to any other parties. Like not 7% ideal. are going to the NDP, 7% to another the Conservatives, I guess, another party, and just like 26% are undecided. So there's just a lot of uh, difficulty for them in picking up, even like the votes they got in 2020, which was not a significant number. Yeah, they're in trouble. And so far, I don't seem to think they really realize how much trouble they're in because they are not doing the work that seems to be needed to actually course correct on any of this stuff just slapping a new coat of paint uh, on the car isn't going to get the uh, engine working again. Well, let's talk about the next challenge they're facing the redistribution uh the BC Electoral Boundary Commission released its final report. I think we actually missed this a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was just a week ago. It has, okay. Uh, and it has gone just last and week, been I think. debated. I think it was approved by the legislature this week, or even just in the last day or two. And so it seems like this is moving forward. 
us the province moving from 87 ridings to 93 as we get six new districts. We'll have to find some more chairs in the legislature. Yeah, that's going to make the uh, arrangement in the ledge a little tougher. Like, it already has that weird curve to it just to try and fit a few more chairs in. Remember Mike Farnworth's solution, benches. You know what? The uh, traditionalist in me kind of exactly. likes that, going back to like, the uh, British Parliament approach uh, to it. So this is a standard review that happens every so often when we need to decide how to make sure our representation by population is fair. Uh, a commission is given a certain set of guidelines and requirements from the legislature that go beyond just making sure that every riding is equal in population. There's, you know, keep communities together, uh, don't let a riding get too big, uh, and a number of other priorities always get shoehorned in there. Uh, in this case, they came out and said, yeah, all right, we want six new districts to go up to 93. We'll, we need to largely put those where most of the growth has happened. So that's Metro Vancouver, largely, which will get four. That's a new riding in Burnaby, Langley, Surrey, and Vancouver, the city. Uh, there'll be another one for Southern Vancouver Island, largely accommodating the growth in Langford. And in the Southern Interior, this is around Kelowna, West Kelowna, even going up Lake Country and Vernon, so just kind of shoehorning that all in. Uh, there was an initial proposal a few months ago, I believe. People yelled and complained about that because they looked at their community and went, why did you put this here and that there? What I think has made it a little bit extra confusing for some of the reporting is the federal government is also running a boundary commission in BC right now too. And so there have been like two sets of maps that people have been looking at. And I think even my local paper got confused when they're like, they were going to include Langley in the Port Coquitlam riding. And I'm like, I don't, I think that was the federal one. That doesn't make sense provincially. But even that got fixed federally. Uh, any major takeaways from this on in the maps and things you look at from that? This is a massive like 260 page document. And I've yeah, and maps on a podcast is not the uh, the best uh, combination of medium's. Uh, I mean, the Vancouver one's a little more jigsaw than the last one, which will, I, don't know, I guess, is slightly interesting. Um, my writing's getting renamed uh, Vancouver Strathcona, though I expect it will still be extremely uncompetitive, unfortunately. So uh, there is that. Uh, interestingly, um, was it Vancouver... False Creek? Mm, yeah. So Sam Sullivan's old riding? Is that the right name? Yeah, so that one uh, basically included Yale Town and Olympic Village. And now they've, they're have they drawing the uh, boundary right through False Creek. So Yale Town and Downtown gets one uh, riding. And Olympic Village uh, is going to be included in Vancouver Little Mountain, which reaches kind of all the way down along uh, Main Street and Canby, uh, down quite a ways. Uh, so I fully expect Vancouver Little Mountain is going to be uh, a safe NDP seat. Uh, but the old uh, Vancouver Falls Street, I always had a bit of a divide between Yale Town, which eh, leaned, a more li leaned more liberal, and Olympic Village, which is a little more uh, NDP. Uh, so with the redrawing of the uh, boundary to split those out, there's, I mean, I wouldn't say a high probability of a BC United pickup, particularly with their polling numbers right now, but um, it does make that potentially a little more competitive or competitive in a slightly different way on there. So, yeah. yeah. Annoyingly, I haven't seen the uh, wonky nerds do the poll-by-poll -poll analysis of what this would mean. Um, I have seen people complain on Vancouver Island about the proposed uh, Ladysmith Oceanside constituency, which goes from Parksville and Qualicum Beach. It circles Nanaimo, which Nanaimo now gets two constituencies named uh, Nanaimo Gabriola Island and Nanaimo Lanceville. And then Ladysmith, which is on the south side of Nanaimo, is stuck in with the northern communities that have been broken off from uh, the Comox Valley riding that they used to be a little bit more connected with. Um, so that's just like a weird puzzle piece in there. Yeah, that doesn't, yeah, that does not seem ideal at all. Jesus. Yeah. I'm actually looking at the map. It's a horseshoe. <laughs> yeah. It is almost like one of those uh, American, 
yeah on that one so yeah that's a little weird do they not have yeah that that's a i mean knowing the geography of the island there like probably isn't a better way to do that with some actually yeah, could you not i mean i guess they prioritize keeping the nimo together as opposed to putting ladysmith with somewhere that actually made sense but yeah that's a weird boundary yeah, my my constituency I don't think changes that much. A lot of like you can you can find the maps and look at them for yourself to see how your community is going to be. Uh, New Mes- New Westminster gets divided up a bit with part of New Westminster spilling into Coquitlam. You know, there's things that they just kind of had to do because of the way the population works out. It does do a pretty good job of maintaining that population balance, but one of the hits they did decide to take is they had to look at these northern ridings which there's six significantly smaller population ridings in the north just because of where people live uh, and they ultimately went you know what we're going to largely preserve these i think they moved borders changed names a little bit i can't say that for sure but they ultimately decided to keep six ridings rather than reducing it to five just because of the inability to be an effective uh, local mp to the geographic area that that would have entailed. So that's good news for, you know, some of the BC Liberal strongholds up there in the Peace region and uh, other parts of the North. But, you know, if you're talking about we've saved our six seats and they don't even hold all six Northern seats, I don't believe, um, because Nathan Cullen's up there too. Uh, Like that's minimal wins for the BCU and they may even be facing challenges from the like, attempted resurgence of the bc conservatives these days resurgence that i after the uh this last round of news that we talked about they feels a little more probable i mean the fundraising numbers are like way behind anyone else's but uh i don't know if i was the bc liberals i'd be starting to get a little worried about that um so yeah the uh yeah, the main takeaway of that is with the new ridings coming in mostly in the south and the urban areas, that just makes it even more of an uphill climb for the uh, BCU as uh, they have to try and find a message that actually appeals to the parts of the province where the people live, which they should have been working on instead of going for this new rebranding that is apparently a bridge but not a bridge. Yeah, five more seats for the NDP, possibly six if they can have a good breakthrough in Kelowna or part of the Okanagan. Um, that's a structural advantage that has changed significantly in the past, you know, fifteen and years. I just, oh yeah, the the polarization around, of politics around uh, rural urban it does not go great for the uh, rural party when actually I don't know if BC numbers are, but like nationally we're something like an 80 percent urbanized country bc is probably similar if not more so just on account of all the mountains forcing everyone to live in a few areas so yeah that's a challenge that right of center parties are gonna have to figure out in a lot of places but uh bc in particular is one where they're gonna have to figure out how to do that well let's move into our quick takes we'll close this off as a shorter episode this week, maybe the thing that could help the underdog party is uh, banning polling in advance of election day. This is a proposal that has come out of the chief election, chief electoral officer of Ontario's report following their most recent provincial election, the 2022 provincial election. It's got a number of other standard kind of recommendations in there. One weird one that caught my eye was that uh, people should be allowed to go into buildings owned by private landlords if there's a polling station there. Just weird, as you figure that would have gotten worked out when they were citing the polling stations? Like when I saw this, I thought it was about canvassers, but no, they are literally like, they put, apparently this was an issue, they put polling stations in buildings that had access control and then people couldn't go to vote unless they lived in that building it's bad it's weird like that it sounds more like that's an election ontario 
problem than a legislative problem. Maybe there's... Like, if you need legislation to fix your logistical screw-ups, that's probably a bad sign. Like, it, I could see... I don't know Ontario enough, but there might be constituencies or, like, pockets where there aren't enough schools and community centers or other public facilities, so there was, like, a large gym in a rental building and they decided to rent that out and like maybe that's like just a private gym but they were happy to use right. it but then they but locked you the public ass- out which is bizarre you yeah. would assume the terms of the rental agreement would include access to the place being rented well but now the law will require it but let's talk about the real one that caught people's eyes banning polling for two weeks before election day as they write Uh, There were an average of two and a half polls per day, or 36 in total, in the final two weeks of the campaign, which concluded on June 2nd. Quote, political polls have the potential to influence election results by either motivating or demotivating electors. And so they recommend no polling results stating political party favorability ratings be published in the final two weeks before election day. This is just a terrible idea on so many levels. Um... This is democracy. Like The government doesn't get to tell people what they can and can't use to decide their vote. And I'm like, we may not like the fact that polls are so influential, but ultimately it is up to the people to decide how they want to vote based on all the available information they want to consume and, and seek out for that. And if they want, for whatever reason, to base their vote on what the polls are saying, and sometimes that means... Oh, they're going to vote strategically. Sometimes it's more weird. People want to back a winner or psychological stuff. Whatever the reason is, like if you're actually committed to democracy, you kind of have to let the people vote based on what they want to vote on. And in that sense, they should have as much information available to them as possible. However much some people may not like what they do with it additionally all this would do is basically shift the information environment away from people to more towards parties which conduct their own internal polls and so you would have the political operatives knowing more than the public does which already happens to a small degree but would be significantly exacerbated which probably not ideal on that front and there would also be no real way to check any claims that they would make because this would also now introduce a huge advantage in you know accidentally leaking information around polling to friendly media or even just a case of oh hey this is now popping up on social media wonder where that came from sort of thing that uh Without the public polling to act as a check on that, there's just a whole bunch of incentives to either lie or release fake polling or just do a whole bunch of stuff that uh, is a little you know, underhanded but is absolutely incentivized by this. And I don't think it's even enforceable because for polling companies not located in Ontario, there would be a lot of incentive for them to poll Ontario and, you know, release that information within their own, you know, local markets. I don't know if that happens to make its way into Ontario. Oh, that's interesting. So I'm ambivalent on this. I think a two-week blackout period is a bit much, but this isn't something out of left field. This is done in a few places around the world, and I've seen the debate in the UK come up repeatedly both when i lived there and i kind of follow it still um i think like the way a law like this would work would largely be a prohibition on the print and standard traditional media so you couldn't leak to a journalist your internal poll or you could but then they couldn't publish it uh the social media angle i think is the real challenge uh we are seeing governments work more with social media and we'll talk about that in a second in our other story in terms of takedown notices, but you know, stuff would still get out and on discords and things like that. So functionally it might not be doable. Yeah. Cause that apparently is now so a venue for uh classified material, which even that's making its way out through that. So, right. Uh, like 
I think polls are way overstated in their value and we end up spending way too much time. I think the value of a thing like this could be in just changing the election discussion because the Ontario election discussion just became like, well, this is a this is a boring election because all the polls haven't changed. And it was just like repeated on that. So at very least, this would for- force journalists to have to talk about something which could be valuable and that could actually provide substantive information. But, you know, I don't think it's likely to happen. What's most weird about this is that it comes in the middle of this larger report as like a little pop-out box suggestion or recommendation but there's no discussion of the broader like academic debates that have happened around this political scientists have actually engaged in this debate i think they've large i think you know i can't say definitively that the consensus is against the recommendation but there there is a deeper discussion here and there is discussion of the influence and like academic measures on these things instead they're just like we don't like polls. They were possibly, and they even like admit they either may motivate or demotivate electors. Well, if it's doing both, it might cancel out. So they made a bad case for a very wild proposal. Yeah. Also, like when you're, yeah, and this also has free speech implications too. If you're going, we don't have absolute free speech in this country, but if you're going to make a case for something that's a significant publication ban you do still have to justify it under section one and this is we have freedom of expression and you have to argue this is expression and not all speech is expressive i i think it's a pretty decent case that political polls have expressive content but yeah i would i would have a hard time seeing a court going along with this particularly with such a uh lackluster supportive uh case being hey, made for it uh we're talking about ontario where they've invoked the notwithstanding clause to bring through changes before so if doug ford likes this i don't know why he would his polls have been great so <laughs> yeah and yeah I, the bigger reason why people were demotivated in the last election and there was low voter turnout was the two opposition parties ran crap campaigns like they will admit that themselves the liberals and the ndp both did a terrible job campaigning in that election and when you had a reasonably popular incumbent and two opposition parties that uh couldn't stop stumbling over themselves and just absolutely failed to do anything that actually connected with the voters is it any wonder that uh there wasn't a huge turnout on that, and there's a like there is a correlation or or there's a case they're making that correlation is causation here, and that is just not established at all. Like was turnout low because the uh, polls were showing uh, what they were showing, or uh, was there the other factor that made both the uh, turnout and the polls be what they were, namely? the Liberals and the NDP being terrible. Doug Ford wasn't that popular halfway through his mandate or even two-thirds through, and then things... I don't know. It was a mess. This is a weird suggestion. Maybe it's not even in the legislative recommendations to change, so maybe this recommendation he's putting out there is just like a bag of polling companies themselves. Well, no, because the thing is titled A Call for Legislative Change in the Bots. (laughs) Um, Fair. And also, like, yeah... You mentioned that uh, at the start that this may help the smaller parties. That's not always the case. Like, there are definitely come-from-behind campaigns that uh, get extra wind in their sails in the final push when uh, there's a showing that the polls are shifting in their direction. Um, Or, like, the uh, 2011, where the uh, NDP were surging into bed. Like, the fact that there was recognition of that in the polls helped them along, and um, something that we see mirrored both in Ontario and federally is there's kind of a uh, fight between the Liberals and the NDP for who gets to be the not main not conservative option in those elections. And well, that doesn't necessarily seem like a big fight federally at the moment. You know, in 2015, that was a real up in the air thing, and. 
without polling to say how the election was going. Like, you may have had a case where it got split right down the middle and Harper got a third, or wasn't, wouldn't have been his third term, would have gotten another term out of that because of a perfect vote split, or you may have ended up with uh, Prime Minister Mulcair instead of Prime Minister Trudeau. Like, there is just a whole bunch of ways that this could go in a bunch of different ways. And, like, in that case, polling helped the third party become the first place party because once they showed some momentum, there was coalescing around there. Like, there there's just no way to know ahead of time what like, polls are fun- going Fundamentally, I do want our politics to more be about... Fundamentally, I want our politics to be more about policy than vibes, and polls really lean heavily on vibes. And so that's why I think I'm more sympathetic to this as like we do have too many polls often and they get way too much coverage. I was reticent on talking about the poll we talked about today, other than it helps us get understand where things are. But like we don't need 36 polls in 14 days. So yeah, I mean I'm a I like talking about policy too. I am just not convinced that human nature is such that if you remove one source of vibes that people won't just try and substitute other oh, less precise, less data-driven sure, vibes. Polls aren't perfect it. data, and though. Yeah, I, <laughs> they're not. But I'm just saying, if you get rid of polls, you're probably not going to get everyone turning into a bunch of wants. You're probably going to get them looking at even less precise methods of figuring out what's going on. Maybe they'll the just are. Uh, find their favorite a political nerd friend and podcasters and just decide who to vote based on them. This is really just a self-interested pitch. Let's talk about our final story. Why don't you take us in? Yeah, so this is something uh, I just wanted to flag briefly. Uh, so there's uh, coverage in the Canadian press uh, this week about a uh, new document showing that the federal government's been asking uh, – social media companies to uh, take material off of its website. Uh, some of the stuff is that these companies remove is stuff like copyright stuff and whatnot. But interestingly here is that there was a request made by the government, uh, specifically Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship Canada, back in September 2021 to remove a unspecified Toronto Sun article and the reporting does not mention which article it is, so we not able to go bad. Actually, Candleland discussed this on today this. on Shortcuts. Jonathan Gold, Goldsby and Luke Savage—they think it was a Lauren Gunter article. They're pretty sure. Yeah, maybe. Like it might not be. Like in a which would make it an opinion piece on that. Yeah. Uh, too. If it, yeah. Uh, uh, the companies ultimately didn't request that, but. I think it's concerning for the government to basically be trying to remove content it just doesn't like the material on uh, from one of the major distribution venues that currently exists for uh, media. Yeah, it like the larger source of this was a parliamentary question from the Conservative Party and a written question. They got documents showing 214 examples of auto of uh, question of requests being made between January 2020 and February 2023, and like the immigration example of the specific story is bad. Although good on social media for not caving on that. It sounds like the article probably did the standard thing that a Sun article would do and blow things up a bit, um, but. That's, yeah, exactly. It's not the government's place um, to decide what the sun prints. But that seems to be uh, like on there the exception rather than the rule. Like, there's a number of cases, like you said, of uh, there was one case of CRA accidentally or CRA employees accidentally sharing taxpayer mess information through Facebook Messenger, and so they got Facebook to delete those messages. Right, <laughs> that's bad, and that's a good thing to delete. Do people not know basic uh, those information? people were disciplined. <laughs> uh, there was also someone impersonating so. Brenda Lucky and sending people fake messages. 
Um, so Facebook, the government asked that that be deleted, which like fair, that's a, you know, I report fake accounts all the time. The government doing that shouldn't be a scandal. Yeah, that's like a, there's, that's yeah. a crime right there. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's simultaneously like there's a bad story in here, but like the broader story is actually, thankfully the government's not, at least publicly not, um, and like they have to be honest to parliamentary questions. I think CSIS didn't answer the parliamentary questions, citing, you know, their standard privileges, which, you know, maybe CSIS is the ones asking for all the stuff to be deleted. And yeah, it's an interesting story at very least. Yeah. Well, part of the reason I wanted to flag it is like the government's looking at bringing in a bunch of regulations on social media companies. We haven't really talked about the bills that are being before parliament on this stuff at all and we should probably we did an interview with open media on one of them last year yeah but there's like a lot more we we could be diving into on these and i guess my real concern is that yeah it's great the uh companies decided not to do that here but you know are we potentially heading towards a situation where there won't be quite as much independence on that sort of stuff going forward uh, here? And if the government's been willing to do it before when they don't have any legislative tools to back up that request, I'm not as comfortable with that uh, going forward when they may have legislative tools. We'll have to dig into the details of those legislations to see the like layers of oversight on that. Overall, I think this is towards a nothing burger of a story, but uh, you know, interesting question asked by a conservative and definitely worth a write up by Canada Press, Canadian Press. But uh, you know, it's it's in the realm of Pierre Polyev snitch tagging Elon to tag CBC. Uh, state-funded media level of like uh, there's an argument there but you're not the person to make it of course uh he may be the next prime minister and like i think it's worth the liberals really considering as they're going about their uh uh legislation whether they'd want pierre polyev or the people pierre polyev would appoint having the level of control um over what uh appears on Canadian social media that they uh that they seem to be uh interested in potentially having. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.